Take your Bible, if you would. Turn to the third chapter of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. This morning we'll deal with verses 8 to 13. Next Sunday we'll end up uh, finishing up 2 Peter. That puts us into the first Sunday of April. The second Sunday of April, the choir is going to lead us in worship that day. And then the following Sunday, of course, is uh, Easter Sunday. And uh, so time marches on. And uh, we've come to the, coming to the end of Second Peter, being an authentic Christian. And there's a reason why we need to be authentic in our Christianity, real in our Christianity, which you'll see as we move through this passage today, and especially as we think about the people who are living in Peter's day. There's a lot of anxiety in our world today about the future. And so that's why I think the book of 2 Peter is so relevant to us. Uh, People in Peter's day were anxious Not only, last week we dealt with the fact that there would be scoffers in the last days, but not only were there scoffers who were creating doubt and confusion about the return of Christ, but there also, these early believers were having to deal and endure some of the most horrible persecutions imaginable. There was a historian by the name of Solipicus Servius, who wrote about that persecution. Listen to what he says. In the meantime, the number of Christians now being very large, it happened that Rome was destroyed by fire while Nero was stationed at Antietam. But the opinion of all cast the odium of causing the fire upon the emperor. And he was believed in this way to have sought for the glory of building a new city. In fact, Nero could not, by any means he tried, escape the charge that the fire had been caused by his orders. He therefore turned the accusation against the Christians, and the most cruel tortures were accordingly inflicted upon the innocent. Nay, even new kinds of death were invented, so that being covered in the skins of wild beasts, they perished by being devoured by dogs." while many were crucified or slain by fire, that when the day came to a close, they should be consumed to serve for light during the night. In this way, cruelty first began to be manifested against the Christians. Afterwards, too, their religion was prohibited by laws which were enacted and by edicts openly set forth. It was proclaimed unlawful to be a Christian." Do you understand that? Nero literally would take Christians, wrap them in wild animal skins, throw them to the dogs, and the dogs would kill them and eat them. Many were crucified. Many were burned. And then Nero got the idea that he could use Christians for streetlights. And they would literally be hung on a pole where they would be burned to provide light for Nero and all in his uh, realm of influence to have parties and whatever they were doing going on there. So when you you read 2 Peter in light of this, 
you understand that the future for these people looked very bleak. And so the text that we're going to read this morning is Peter's attempt to calm their fears. It's Peter's attempt to strengthen their hope by explaining to them the plan that God has for the future. Uh, Let's stand together in honor and reverence of the reading of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Let's begin in verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, The elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Father, now bless to our understanding, the reading, the hearing, and the interpretation of your word. May our understanding grow as we begin to understand our responsibility in the world where we live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm firmly convinced that the reason that we are so complacent in modern Christianity and in the church in America in particular is because we've never experienced persecution. We don't know what it's like to wonder what will happen to us if we gather together to worship. We don't know what it's like to have to live in a world where you can be killed Uh, for no other reason except the fact that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And therefore, it has made us very complacent toward Christianity in general, toward evangelism in particular. I mentioned some of this to you last week, but I want to go back over it again because uh, I think it's so important. There's so much material. There's so much material out there about the end times, And everybody seems to have their own opinion and their own interpretation about what this means and what that means, what's going to happen. Let me just give you a couple of statements about the future uh, that I hope will be helpful to you, encourage you as you look at these things. First of all, while God has revealed many things about the future, much of this is still a mystery. We do not know. Uh, We can be sure of the big picture. We can be sure of the big picture of Bible prophecy, but a lot of the details remain known only to God. And so just because John Hagee writes a new book about the end times or David Jeremiah writes a new book, don't, 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 don't go out and buy that and, and read it as if it's the Bible. That's their interpretation of what's going to happen in the end times, and it may be right, it may not be right, it really doesn't matter. The details are known to God. That leads me to the second thing I want to say to you because I think this is of even greater importance, and that's this. When you study biblical prophecy, please make sure that you leave room and plenty of room for questions. 
Try not to make agreement on the particulars of future events a basis of fellowship for, with other Christians. I have many friends who don't hold to my uh, pre-tribulational rapture, millennial reign, that whole idea of, of how the end is going to take place. They're not lost. They're not they're not evil people. They just have a different way of looking at end time events. And that's okay. Listen, if you agree on the fundamental saving truths of the scripture, things like the Trinity, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, which is the gospel, then cut each other some slack. How about show a little grace? Show some grace toward people who don't see it the same way you do. Because while we do know a lot about what's going to happen in the future, we don't know everything. And we don't know the details. And you can't be so dogmatic about what you believe that you begin to make that a basis of fellowship with others. Here's the third thing I want to say. Even though we don't know all the details, there are some things on which I will not back up one inch. I will not back up on the fact that Jesus Christ is going to physically return to this earth. There is going to come a day when Jesus is going to return. I will not back up on the fact that there is going to be a final judgment that those who know Christ are going to stand before the great uh, throne of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, and we're going to give account for what we've done in our lives, and there's going to be the great white throne judgment, at which time lost people are going to be judged and sentenced to an eternity separated from God. I will not back up on the fact that heaven is real and hell is real. They are not just places that we have imagined or tried to come up with to explain religious language or philosophy. They are real places. And there's one more thing that I will not back up on. I will not back up on the resurrection of our bodies. That is an absolute certainty. There is going to come a time when Christians are going to be resurrected from the dead. We're going to get our spiritual body. I have no clue what that's going to look like. Mine's going to look like Brad Pitt, I think. <laughs> Once again, cut me some slack. All right? You can be whoever you want to be. I'll have my own dreams. In the beginning of 2 Peter, Peter establishes the authority of Scripture as the sole source of truth. It is the source of truth about the past, it is a source of truth about the present. It is a source of truth about the future. Uh, I don't have time to go back and, and, and do this again, but if you go back and look at chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, Peter establishes that the Bible, the Scripture, is going to be the sole source of truth. That same source of authority is the source that exists today as we begin to look at what the world is going to look like as we move forward. So let's just look at this text in light of those things that I've just said to you. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning. I want you to look at God's view of time. God's view of time. Look at verse 8. 
Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Here's what Peter is trying to teach us. Now get this. God looks at time differently than you look at time. God's way of looking at time is entirely different than ours. Those early Christians fully expected Jesus to return in a very short period of time. They believed that he was going to come back during their lifetime. When Peter wrote this letter, only 35 years have passed between the ascension of Jesus Christ. So 35 years since the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, 35 years have passed. But a whole lot has happened in that period of time. For these first century Christians, many of them have been ostracized by their families. They've lost all their friends because they have converted from Judaism to Christianity. They also, I've already mentioned the intense persecution that was occurring uh, by the Roman government. And so the result was this real temptation to begin to look at time from a human standpoint rather than looking at time from an eternal perspective. The Bible always looks at time from the perspective of eternity, not the time. We always talk about, we'll, we'll say things like, this is the worst it's ever been. There is no possible way you can know that because you've not been alive. That the only thing that you know anything about is the period of time between the time you are born and today. That's your frame of reference. Uh, and it's not even from the time you were born, because there's none of you in here who remember what the day you were born. Anything you know about your birth, you were told by somebody else. So you, you have a memory. Maybe some of you can remember things that happened when you were two, three, four years of age. So let's just say you're four years old until you are 54 years old or 84 years old. That's your frame of reference. You may say, it's the worst it's been in my lifetime. That's a, that could be a correct statement. But you cannot make the statement that the world is the worst it's ever been because you haven't lived long enough to make those kinds of pronouncements. So we look at time differently. We have a tendency to view a thousand years or a hundred years as if it's a long time. Listen, I'm to the point now where a week seems like a long time to me. There are days that seem pretty long to me, but that's not the same with God. God doesn't have a beginning. God doesn't have an ending. And so... When he thinks about, when he looks at a hundred years or a thousand years, it's all the same to him. Doesn't matter. God has always existed, and so God is not limited by time. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not aware of relationship of time. God knows the difference between a hundred years and a day or a thousand years and a day. But because of his ultimate knowledge of all things, God is never in a hurry to get anything done. You need to remember that. I mean, we, we all, every one of us, I'm guilty of this, you're, I, I'm ready for the Lord to come back. I wish the Lord would come back. And we've all said that. We've all talked, well, God's not in any hurry to get anything done. He's never fretful. He's never impatient. 
And God sees what will happen a thousand years from now just as clearly as you see what is happening in this very moment where you are right now. And here's what you need to remember. He's got all of it under control. He's got all of it under control. Don't use verse 8 as a formula by which God measures time. Some of these guys have written books about the fact that a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day, so that means there's only been two days in God's time since Jesus has been gone, and so now we can figure out when he's coming back. Peter could just as easily have said, a million years is as one day to God. Because he's not talking about that relationship of time. He is simply saying God doesn't view time the same way we do. And he's, he's not in a hurry to get anything done. And he's in control of all things. Let him be God. You get back in your lane. All right? Here's a second thing Peter teaches us. Now he talks about the love that God has for all humanity. So now he's just said, stop trying to figure out times, and with God, time doesn't, time doesn't mean the same thing to God that it means to you. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack. That word is lazy. The, word is not lazy, uh, the, the Lord is not lazy concerning this promise, as some count laziness, but he's long-suffering. That's patient. He's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the delay, remember these people think that God has been delayed because he hasn't come back yet. So this delay is not an indication that God has forgotten us. It's a sign that he loves us. Every day that the Lord tarries, Every day that the Lord doesn't come back, he gives lost people one more chance to respond to the gospel. So the Lord is not slow. He's patient. The Lord is not late. He's deliberately waiting. The Lord is not indifferent. He's merciful. He literally is holding back the events of the end of time in order that he may give every single person possible an opportunity to be saved. That means you. Now, just think about all this thing. We thought, I just wish the Lord would come back. I'm ready for the Lord to come back. Come, Lord Jesus. Suppose the Lord had come back two minutes before you got saved. Suppose the end had come two minutes before you made the profession of faith to follow Jesus Christ. Or make it more personal than than, than that. Think of somebody that you know, somebody that you love, a husband, a wife, a child, a grandchild. They're not a Christian. Go back to verse 9 and put their name in the place of any and all. Let me do it with my name. Listen to how it reads. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that Keith Vaughn should perish, but that Keith Vaughn should come to repentance. Put the name of your loved one in there. God is not forgotten us. He's in control of all things. He is deliberately holding back the end time events so that if you are lost, you can be saved today. God doesn't look at time the way you and I look at time. God has an infinite love for all mankind. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Ultimately, it's all going to end. There will be an ending point. You begin in verse 10, the day of the Lord. I believe that that day of the Lord is the great tribulation, not just the tribulation. In my eschatology, I believe that there's going to be a time, and I've explained this before, and I don't have time to explain it today, but um, I believe that there's going to be a time when the church is raptured out of the world. The tribulation will begin for the first three and a half years. Things on earth are going to be horrible. At the middle of that period of time, you're going to have what Jesus referred to in Matthew 24 as the great tribulation. That is when the Antichrist finally enshrines himself into the temple that is going to be built in Jerusalem, and he's going to march into the temple where sacrifices are going to be being made at that moment, and he is going to declare himself to be God. And when he does that, that is what we call the abomination of desolation. And when that occurs, all hell is going to break loose on this earth. And what has happened in the first three and a half years is going to be nothing compared to what happens in the last three and a half years. So I believe that's what Peter's talking about. I think he's talking about the great tribulation. In spite of the fact that God is generous and God is merciful and God is waiting patiently for you to receive him as Lord, one day God's patience will come to an end. And it will cut off abruptly. It'll cut off with the final judgment. More than 95 times in the New Testament, you will find the phrase, day of the Lord. Or you may find it as the day. Or you may see it as the great day. But any time you see that phrase, you need to think of one word. And that word is judgment. Judgment. So when, whenever the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, it's talking about the judgment of God. And just like Jesus did in Matthew chapter 24, which is a part of the Mount Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Jesus says that the day of the Lord is going to come, and he says it the very same way that Peter says it in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. What's that mean? That means that no one knows when he's coming, because nobody knows when a thief is going to strike, right? I hope your house has never been broken into, but maybe it has, and uh, you've had to deal with, with that. Well, here's what I know about successful thieves. If you want to be successful in the thievery business, 
Not one time do they pick up the phone and call and say, Keith, uh, I'm planning on breaking into your house on Thursday about 3.30. Is that convenient for you? Where will you be during that time? I've I've got you penciled in. For 3.30 Thursday afternoon, I plan to break in your house. You know what I'd say? Bring it. You know why? Because I'd be ready. I'd be sitting there. I don't know much about guns, but I would find one, and I'd be sitting there. When he opened the door, I'd say, welcome to my home. And here, I'd like to introduce you to my little friend. Right? Okay, I'd be ready. Thieves don't do that. Thieves don't come as you are expecting them. They come suddenly. They come unexpectedly. They come surprisingly. Peter uses three very interesting phrases in verse 10 to describe what's going to happen. He says, the heavens and the earth will pass with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Verse 12 adds another detail. He says, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, what is he telling us? In that very graphic description, he is telling us that the entire earth system is going to be completely purged by fire in preparation for what happens in verse 13, new heavens new earth. This is not a Chip and Joanna Gaines makeover. All right? This is not somebody's going to come in, we're just going to straighten up a little bit, and then the Lord's going to come and we'll set up his kingdom. No, it's all going to be destroyed. Now, I personally do not believe, there are some who do, but I don't. I don't believe that the final end of this world is going to come because of some uh, nervous military leader who uh, doesn't know any better and he just pushes the button and sets off nuclear war around the world. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I believe God himself is going to push the button. You see, he created the heavens and the earth that you and I live in. And he has reserved the right for himself to bring it all to an end. And he's going to do that in his own way, and he's going to do that in his own timing. So the time is going to come when, according to this passage, the earth, the world, is going to disintegrate. The entire solar system, our earth as we know it, all of it, is destined for destruction. That is not merely the opinion of one pessimistic preacher. It is the accepted viewpoint of many respected men and women of science, nuclear physicists, ecologists, population experts all believe that there is going to be a day when this earth comes to a cataclysmic end. We may disagree on the way it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. The Bible confirms that. But the good news is that the scripture does not leave us with these shattered dreams and shattered remains of a once glorious world. Verse 13 says there are going to be new heavens and new earth. That makes all the difference in the world. Because of that bright prospect, you and I look forward in confidence. You and I look forward in hope 
We see life as having meaning not only for today, but we see life having meaning for all eternity. In contrast, a lost person has nothing to anticipate but hopelessness. No wonder so many in our culture today rely on alcohol and drugs. They say they're trying to find something that'll quote-unquote settle their nerves. Well, number one, those things are stimulants. They're not depressants, and so they're not going to settle your nerves. They're going to ramp you up even worse than you already are. But it's sad. It's sad that there are people living in this world today who are using all kinds of things to try to figure out how to make the world a better place to go to hell from. We need a proper perspective concerning the last days. There are some people out there today who erroneously, I believe, teach that the entire world system has to be converted before the end can come, that everybody has to get saved before Jesus comes. And they believe that through a combination of evangelism and social action, we are actually actually going to usher in the millennium. Uh, They believe that that some kind of aggressive form of human self-improvement is going to create conditions that will resemble heaven. And once we can create that heavenly place here on earth, then Jesus will come back. There's a Greek word for that. It's baloney. (laughs) All you have to do is look at the world in which you live and you, you will quickly see that we are not getting better and better and better and better. We're getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And anybody who thinks that all we got to do is just all come together and hold hands and sing kumbaya and we'll all just get along together and we can save the planet and we can save the animals and we can do this, that, and the other is living in a dream world somewhere. The world is moving farther and farther away from God, not closer and closer to God. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I can give you one example just this week. A grown woman sat in front of the Congress of the United States of America and when asked to to define what a woman is, said, I don't know, I'm not a biologist. That's like coming to me and saying, what's the weather like? I don't know, I'm not a meteorologist. It's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard of in my life. I've known what a woman was since I was four, five, six years old, right? You all look at me like you don't know what it is. You do know what it is, right? Y'all know the difference between men and women, right? We are different, and they are different. And gender was assigned by God, and he wasn't confused when he assigned it. And we want to put somebody like that on the highest court in the land so that she can continue to say, we have the right to kill babies in the womb before they're born. Now tell me, we're getting better and better and better and better. This world without Jesus is headed to hell. And if you don't know Jesus... As your personal savior, you are headed to hell. The Bible says that after the church is snatched away, 
Thessalonians. We call that the rapture. There will come an evil ruler who is referred to as the man of sin, the son of perdition, the beast, the antichrist, and that he will gain world power. And he will do whatever he can to try to wipe out those who believe in God. And for a time, he will be successful. But I have stood in the place where it's all going to come to a crashing end for him. As I stood uh, where Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel uh, met the prophets of Baal. And you look out over that valley. It's called the Valley of Megiddo. Armageddon. And there, all the armies of the world will come for one last battle against, not us, we'll be there, but we're going to be spectators. They will fight the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wins. He wins. And the kingdom of righteousness will be established, and the kingdom of peace will be established by God. So, Pastor Keith, what do we need to do? What do I need to do in light of that understanding of end times? I want to give you three real quick things and then we'll be done. Write these down. Number one, clean up. Clean up. What areas of your life need to be cleaned up today? Now, don't rush through this because it's serious. All of us have sin in our life. In fact, John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what is it in your life? Even the most mature believer in here, the person who's walking closest to God, has some area in their life that they need to address. So right now, what is it? Confess your sin. Seek forgiveness of God and ask God to give you the strength to overcome that sin that's in your life. Clean up. Here's the second thing you need to do. Look up. Look up. Use this as a reminder that everything in this world is temporary. Take a look at how you spend your time. Take a look at how you spend your money. Are you living only in light of what you see are you living in light of only what you experience in this present world, or do you have an eternal perspective? Are you just accumulating things that are eventually just going to pass away? Are you just accumulating a bunch of stuff that your young'uns are going to have to fight over after you're dead? Review your expenses. Take note of where you're spending your money. Take a look at your calendar. And then you need to adjust your calendar and you need to adjust your budget to give you and your family a more eternal look at the future. It's not just about the here and now. It's about what's going to happen in eternity. Jesus is coming. What do you want him to find you doing when you get here, when he gets here? Are you doing things that the Bible says are going to result in wood, hay, and stubble and will all be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ? Or are you doing things that will turn into gold and precious metals and silver that will be used to create the crowns which we will present to Christ at the Bema seat? What are you doing 
Take a look up. Remember, you weren't created for here. You were created for eternity. Here's the third thing. Speak up. Who do you need to share Christ with before it's everlastingly too late? Imagine if Christ were to return this afternoon and judgment began. Who would you miss in heaven? Who would you leave behind? Who would you be grieved about knowing that they're going to have to stand before the great white throne judgment of God and that they're going to uh, spend eternity in hell because you failed to share with them the simple gospel that could have spared them from eternal damnation. Pray for that person. Swallow your pride and gracefully and truthfully share the gospel with them. They may not listen. They may ridicule you. You may say, well, I've, I've told them two or three times, and they just say, leave me alone about that. Well, um, keep, keep telling them. Don't give up. Maybe, just maybe, the next time that you share the gospel with that person who is lost, maybe that's the time that the Holy Spirit will use that to speak to their heart and draw them to the Savior. You don't ever know. You don't ever know. And you say, well, I've, I've tried. I, I, I tried to share gospel with my daughter or my son or my grandson or whatever. And he just won't listen. You keep sharing. You keep praying. You keep speaking up. Don't take one step back. This is too important. This is too important. What do you need to do? Clean up? Look up? Speak up.